0: Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Well, I want to thank you guys for um, those of you who contributed because um, it means a lot, man. When That's like the most precious thing these people can possibly have in these, these, these countries, and we take it for granted because we can run down the Walmart and get a Bible for a dollar, you know. But for them, it's sacred because they can't. And so the fact that you guys contributed to that, and we raised $22,000 and counting, it's huge, huge. When you see these, these folks, these Christian brothers and sisters in these settings, these third world settings, and they get a Bible, um, they cry over it they hold it to their their chest and they weep over it because that's the most precious thing they could possibly have is the word of god in in those areas and um it means a lot so thank you guys and we're going to continue to 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 support Ruth Shaw um and you know steve and nora they're attending our church right now they're getting their health in order Perhaps, perhaps maybe they'll be able to go back to malawi but um uh you know there are missionaries, so they're here, and we support them. They're usually second or third hour, maybe third hour. Usually, that's probably why you're not seeing them uh, most of the time. But I think it's third hour they come. So um, be praying for that 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 uh, missionary endeavor. And uh, man, we're we're so pumped uh, to see that thing take off like it is. And so, anyway, with that being said, um, we're going to turn to Luke chapter two in our Christmas message, and. Um, the, the, the question I have then, is there any more room for Jesus in our society? Is there any more room for Jesus in our schools, in our politics, in our Hollywood entertainment? Or how about this? Is there any more room for Jesus in our churches? Because the last day's church is the Laodicean church. And when Jesus comes to the Laodicean church, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What is that a picture of? It's a picture that the Laodicean church doesn't even have Jesus in it, that he's on the outside knocking on the door of the church saying, Will you let me in? Is that where we're at? I want to take us through there, and um, I'm going to take you through the famous passage that everyone's heard of, there was no room for him in the end, okay? We're going to parse that out because it's not what you really think. Most people have an old English idea of, a, of a, an end in, in London, England, and there's a, a wicked uh innkeeper and he won't let them come in but actually we're going to parse that out and explain what really was happening on the ground so you have a better understanding from a biblical standpoint culturally what was happening and how it applies to us and what the meaning behind that was so let's let's look at a few headlines ask yourself this and you answer it is there room for jesus anymore in our society new york times admits puberty blockers are irreversibly damaging but claims benefits are, are, are worth the costs. You know what the costs are? Sterilization. God created Adam and Eve. Now is a hate crime. Greek athlete receives prison sentence for biblical beliefs on gender. He went to prison for it. For saying God created Adam and Eve. Loudoun County. You know Loudoun County. How crazy Loudoun County is, right? They The parents pushed back on this whole thing of... You know sexualizing their kids and telling them hey you know you might have gender dysphoria you might be a boy you might be a girl so they pushed back and one of the parents said quoted jesus the parents quoted jesus that it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and thrown in the deepest ocean to cause one of these little ones to sin accurately quoting what messiah said if you cause little ones to sin this is your penalty They got so much of a backlash saying, you're causing hate. You're causing violence against us by saying that. Notice, quoting the words of Jesus is now violence. Is there any more room? Omnis Omnis bill earmarks 11 million plus for LGBT related projects. I think we need more help in our economy, don't you think? But again, is there room for Jesus in our economy? Apparently not, because it's going to earmark these kinds of ungodly activities. State Department awards 30,000K grant to pro-transgender group in Kyrgyzstan. We're getting what? What are we doing? What are we doing? How about this? U.S. Olympic Committee pushes for open categories now. Now, you understand that they push open categories in the Olympics. All women's sports are gone, basically. Wow. And grandpa does grandson's makeup in pro-transgender Christmas whiskey commercial. I don't, have, I don't have time to show. I'm going to show it next week because you're not going to believe this. So the grandpa puts makeup on, and then he goes and puts it on his grandson. And, of course, they're grooming, you know, transgenderism through a whiskey commercial. Oh, Yeah. Is there room for Jesus in our culture? Now, let's go to the church real quick. Is there room for Jesus in our churches? This is the latest montage, basically, of churches who are celebrating Christmas, but they're not celebrating the birth of the Messiah. They're celebrating other things. This is one. Oops. Hey, hold on. He's so funny, he can't be beat. This is a Christmas production. Not everything that I desire. It sets the summer sun on fire. what the churches are doing this weekend I want to know where did the birth of the Messiah where did that go I thought that's what we celebrate Christmas that's what we're here for but no no they're doing everything but is there room for Jesus in the church I stand before uh, uh stand in front of the door and knock these churches don't even have Jesus in them now it's gotten worse it's not just that it's this Drag Queen at Christmas service. I, I, I don't I don't know where to start. So for Christmas service, we're going to have a drag queen sing Christmas songs to the congregation and think that's cool. How about this? Do you know that the good portion of the churches today are not even having church? Did you know that? They have canceled Christmas services. Dude, even the pagans get this one right. The two days that pagans go to church is Christmas and Easter the pagans have figured it out. But what do the Christians say? No, we're not having services. Why? If you're going to have any church service, it's going to be on Christmas Day. You wouldn't, five years ago, you would never imagine missing Christmas. But apparently COVID has given these people the mindset, well, we can just take off anytime we want. We had churches in town that took off for uh, 4th of July, and 4th of July was on a Monday, and they took Sunday off. This is the new trend. We just decide to take off. According to LifeWay's survey among non-denominational evangelical pastors, only 61% say they will host Christmas services on Sunday. 61%. So uh, uh, 40% of the churches are not doing it today. Why? Is it inconveniencing them with their family? Is it inconveniencing them with their schedule? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to get in the way of your family and your schedule. But I remember the master saying, you must love me and hate your father and mother. In essence, you must put me first above your family. I think I recall him saying that. So whatever whatever Sunday morning worshiping the Messiah and 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 celebrating his birth is now inconveniencing Christians in their little family productions in their little holiday traditions. You have put your traditions and your family and your priorities over the Messiah. That's what they have done. Look at this, all the mega churches uh, uh, Andy Stanley no in service purse uh uh uh, services jd greer used to be the president of the southern baptist no church services and even first baptist orlando these giant mega church services nothing is happening nothing so my thing is is there room in jesus for our society we see obviously the evidence of that but let's go further. Is there room for Jesus even in our churches, which 40% of the churches decided not to meet today? Even here locally. Even here locally, they took a day off. And they, this is what they said. Spend time with your families. I don't know a better place to spend time with your family rather than in church worshiping the Lord. I don't know a better place. good night with that being the case then i want to take you to the very famous passage of there was no room for him in the end i want to explain this and how it ties into today and there's a principle behind it right so let's let's parse the, the passage out it's about seven verses and let me do some history real quick um, because it's gonna it's gonna dovetail into explaining what was going on in jesus's day and what set up the situation okay So it says this in Luke chapter two, verse one, and it came to pass in in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus is really not his full name. Caesar means king, and Augustus means exalted one or highly revered, and his real name is Gaius Octavius. He lived from uh, 63 BC to 8014. He is the great nephew, great nephew of Julius Caesar, that all the world should be registered. Now, what's the background on this? Here's what you have to understand. This is where I got, let me do a little history to show you the providence of God, okay? So, just a little bit. So, you all know the story of Julius Caesar, right? That Brutus and Cassius assassinated him. And the famous line on the Ides of March, et tu, Brute, and you, Brutus, too. Remember, they, they assassinated Julius Caesar, and then they then um, then what happened is this Caesar Augustus that you're seeing in your biblical text his name is Octavian he he got connected with Marcus Lepidus and Mark Antony okay and they basically went and attacked Caesar's assassins Brutus and Cassius, they went to war with them and Brutus and Cassius ended up committing suicide because they knew the end was coming and Octavian, Marcus, and Mark Antony was going to kill them. Okay, so they start, they, they take over and these three are in power. Octavian forces Lepidus from power in 32 BC. So then it's a war really between uh, Cla- uh, Octavian and Mark Antony. Now you've probably seen the Elizabeth Taylor movie on Cleopatra, didn't you remember that one? Okay, now we get into the Cleopatra era. So Cleopatra lives right before the time of Jesus, okay? Cleopatra is not an Egyptian. She's from the Ptolemies, she's actually Greek, but she has become queen of Egypt. Now she'll dress Egyptian. She thought she she claimed to be the reborn Isis. And so she dressed, she wore the, she did wear the eye makeup of the Egyptians, but they say in history, she did that to ward off uh, diseases from her eyes or something like that. Cleopatra, they say it wasn't the best looking, but she in her personality was a magnet in her personality. Now, how does Cleopatra get into this? mark Antony marries octavian's sister octavia okay and they do it for political reasons so the two would be allied so it was a marriage for political reasons okay but mark anthony runs into cleopatra and he is swooned by her and he starts an affair with cleopatra okay This keeps going on and on, and he realizes not only is the affair beneficial to him politically, but he could basically take over the empire. And so Antony divorces Claudius, or or, uh, Octavia, sorry, which is Octavian's sister. Okay? So you're now getting into like a, a drama here, right? This is a soap opera. He divorces himself, runs off and has an affair with Cleopatra, okay? Now, Cleopatra's been around for a while and she gets around. Okay? At age 21, Cleopatra has an affair with Julius Caesar and has a baby with him. Okay? So, she moves on from julius caesar obviously and her relationship with julius caesar dies when he dies when he's assassinated so then she moves on to mark anthony she's always vying for power she has an affair with julius caesar at age 21. i think julius caesar was like 54. she moves on to mark anthony has an affair with him politically she's 28 when she has an affair and mark anthony's about 42. So she gets around and she knows how to politically maneuver herself. Okay. So again, this ticks off uh, Octavian. And then Mark Anthony, to add insult to, to, to injury, he declares that the child sired from Julius Caesar and Cleopatra is the rightful king, the rightful Caesar, and not Octavian. Even though Octavian had been been uh called by julius caesar to be the next in line so this causes a war and in this war they go they fight and octavian defeats antony and cleopatra in the battle of actium which is a naval battle in 31 bc okay what is so why all this history why all the drama of somebody cheating on each other and this and that because it's the providence of God behind it all. Think about all the drama I just named people cheating on each other, siren babies over here, there's another baby over here, and just it's chaos. It's like a soap opera, right? Why? Because God is doing a work and He's allowing the freedom of these people to do what they're doing to get this guy, Octavian, on the throne. And when Octavian then defeats Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, he becomes Caesar at that point. And that's the mark of really when the Roman Empire begins. Yes, you can go back to Julius Caesar, but this is when this guy gets in power that everything changes for the betterment of the Messiah, And so you have all this political drama, which we call the providence of God, allowing something good to come out of this. And what what came out of this? The big deal that came out of this is Pax Romana. This Pax Romana lasted from 27 B.C. to A.D. 180, from Augustus to Marcus Aurelius. You say, what is the big deal? During this period of time, Rome was fighting no, no wars in the Holy Land, in Israel. Israel, even though it's under the pressure of Rome, is in a peaceful state for this long, almost 200 years. Why is that important? Because if you're going to have the Messiah show up and his message get out, the best way to do it is in a time of peace where there's no wars, And God basically set the stage to allow Augustus to come in and give this Pax Romana, which would allow the spreading of the Gospels. What else happened? Well, Augustus was good at building roads. He instantly gets in, and the first thing he starts doing is working on infrastructure for Rome. And the big infrastructure is the Roman roads, And this is a key thing. The Roman roads still exist today. They were so well constructed. In fact, we get a lot of the lane width of our highways, which I think is on the highway, it's 12 feet. That's the measurement Rome did in the rural areas of their Roman roads. So the width of our roads is attributed to Rome. And and look at how they look at what Augustus did with the roads. It connected the entire Mediterranean with the roads. Now, is that advantageous if you have a message that needs to be spread? Of course. You see why God put Augustus in there? It's because the Roman roads would allow the easy travel and for the gospel to spread like wildfire. Look at the the architecture of the roads, It wasn't just dirt roads. They had four layers that the Romans built. That's why they still last today. And in that that Roman building, this allowed for the ease of travel for the next, really, thousand years. These roads were used to spread the gospel through not only Europe, and just basically everywhere. So... You have one, that's the providence. So it, a, a personal application for you is your life may look chaotic. It might be a drama, okay? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you're right, my life is a drama. And I don't have Cleopatra and, and uh, Mark Anthony shacking up, but I got a lot of other kind of things going on. And it's drama. Yes, I get it. But what is the message here? Even though it seems like there's a lot of drama, behind the scenes is God working to benefit not only the message of Messiah, but even your life to bring good out of what, the mess that you're in. And that's how you personally need to apply that. He's working behind the scenes, and it's called providence. Now we need a second witness. Notice that Caesar Augustus is the first witness, and Luke then brings in a second witness, which is Quirinius. Isn't it interesting that when you establish a truth in the Bible, there'll always be two or three witnesses. So God established Caesar Augustus, and now Quirinius, who is this guy. Quirinius was a a well-known governor in Syria at the time. And as you can see that Luke points out, this census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, what Caesar Augustus did is he wanted a census, and he would issue many censuses, and he issued one under uh, Quirinius in about 8 or 7 B.C. Messiah is born in 6 or 7 B.C. But why is this important? Because usually in a census... You just have them register wherever they're living, okay? So with Joseph, he was living in Nazareth, and Mary's living in Nazareth. They would have just registered in Nazareth. And if they registered in Nazareth, and they had Jesus in Nazareth, it wouldn't have fulfilled the prophets, right? Even though they're descendants of David, they were, they needed, Jesus needed to be born in Bethlehem. So how are you going to get Jesus to Bethlehem? where we're gonna use Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus is actually gonna be friendly to the Jews during this era and and to make it more palatable, because why do you do a census? You do it for taxes, okay? So to make it more palatable for the Jews, he said, well, let's do a census, but let's tell them to go back to their ancestral lines to make it more palatable, and they can register where, where their ancestors are from. And he did this, as a pro-Semitic issuance. And under Quirinius, Assyria, which included Israel, they issued this in about 8 BC. And so, hence, this is what drives Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. Again, this is, these are humans making free will decisions. This is Caesar being kind to the Jews and it allows the prophecies to come to fruition. That's pretty amazing. Now, there's debate. People will say, well, Qu- 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 Quirinius issued another decree in 7 AD, and this is not the same one, so Luke's mistaken. No, no. What archaeology and, 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 and all kinds of manuscripts and stuff like that talk about is the fact that Quirinius actually did two uh, censuses, one in 8 BC and the other one in 7 and 8 AD. He did two. And the Romans were famous for constantly doing census for taxation purposes. So everything matches up historically. Okay. Here are some of the uh, archaeological remains of Quirinius. And these are in stone, engraved in, in now museums. And there is uh, you can't see it, but Quirinius' name is right on there. So we know this is a historical fact. This is not a, a fantasy story. You couldn't make this up, and the archaeology backs it up. But here's the, 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 the passage that I want to use that explains all this. This is found in Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice the phrase, fullness of the time had come. What does that mean? That everything was right for Messiah to come. You had the Roman roads. You had Caesar Augustus with Pax Romana. And also with, uh, with the advent of Hellenistic practices brought in by Alexander the Great, you had Koine Greek. And that was the most accurate language on the face of the planet and still is today. And the New Testament gets put into Koine Greek. So all of this function to make this the right time for the Messiah. So God is never early. He's never late. He's always right on time. You can't forget that even though our lives look chaotic and America is seeming to go to, to Hades in a handbasket, it's all happening at the right time. It's setting things up. Okay, Let's go back. So it says, "Justice also went up. From Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. This is interesting. The city of David is typically the the, the outcropping uh, in Jerusalem, south of the temple. That's usually called the city of David. But now, uh, Luke is referring to, say, wait, the city of David is where David was born, in Bethlehem. And so that's where they're going, because that's where David came from. Hence, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Now, because, again, this Jewish-friendly census of going back to your ancestral lines, Joseph then starts the trek. The trek is about 90 miles on foot, okay? And this is the path that they would have taken. They definitely would have not went through Samaria, Because Samaria, the Jews avoided that. When Jesus' ministry, Jesus went into Samaria. Remember the the woman at the well and all of that. But typically the Jews would go from Nazareth down into the Rift Valley where the Jordan is and trek along the desert line and hit Jericho and then move up. So this is is a 90-mile trek. Uh, He's got Mary with him. She's pregnant. And this is a very dangerous trek most people gloss over it and do do not understand how dangerous this trek was first of all you have the the distance is a problem and then when you hit jericho and go up to bethlehem you're you can see on this other map on the left hand side jericho is about 827 feet below sea level bethlehem is the same as jerusalem which is about 2556 above sea level So they're going to have to climb about 3,380 feet in ascent up to Bethlehem. That's a chore. By the way, the ascent from Jericho to Jerusalem is one of the most arduous trips you could possibly make. It's a Judean wilderness. It is where Jesus was tempted. It is desolate. There's nothing there. And the problem is there's bandits all over the roads waiting to to rough you up steal from you or even kill from you kill you hence this is the that path from jericho to jerusalem is noted that that is the valley of the shadow of death isn't that interesting the location is that road between jericho and jerusalem is the valley of the shadow of death where have you heard that before Yea, though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Now, why did they fear evil? Because on that path, it was so small, if you fell over, you're dead. There were cliffs, that you, a path that on these, these mountainous regions that if you fell, they're gone. There's no ropes, there's, no, there's nothing to hold you. So it, people lost their lives walking up to Jerusalem. A lot of times i falling fallen off the cliffs. The second thing, like I mentioned, is you couldn't see bandits because the road was windy, and so it was like 90-degree angles. And so once you turn, you couldn't even see what was around the bend. And that's how criminals and robbers got you because you couldn't see ahead on these paths. And that became the moniker of the valley of the shadow of death because you could die, right? So they have to take the valley of the shadow of death to Jerusalem. So this is not some pleasant trip. Plus she's pregnant. It is very difficult for them to get there. But they do. I just want to explain this. Because the movies make it like it was always an easy trip. People would die on this trip. Okay, it's a big deal. So they arrive at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is called the house of bread. Why? Because Messiah would be the bread of heaven. So it's funny that the name points to the Messiah, the the bread of life, would come from Bethlehem, the house of bread. And at that time, um, Bethlehem only about, had maybe 200 people in population. But what would happen with Bethlehem is, during the feast, you had to come to Israel, or sorry, Jerusalem, three times a, a year. And you had to come and present yourself, do your sacrifices. And so what they would do is stay in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem on feast days would have a population upwards towards a million people. Jerusalem would have two million people descended on it. And they're all camped out because there's no other place. So what they would do is they would hit Bethlehem, stay in there or Bethany or anywhere around Jerusalem on the feast days. So yes, it was a small population, but... On feast days, it exploded. And people were just all camped out everywhere they could possibly be. I'll get to that in a minute and how that plays this, 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 this role. But here's what Bethlehem looks. It's very mountainous. And today they have terraces where they grow olive trees and stuff. But it's very mountainous. Very rocky, as you can see. Very rocky. And these were the, shepherd, would have, the shepherds would have had their flocks. Now here's the thing. We have a clue possibly of what time of year it is because the shepherds have their flocks out at night. They typically didn't have their flocks out at night. They would put them in the caves of Bethlehem to shelter them from the cold. So, it's more than likely that these flocks that are outside at night, it's in a warmer part of the year and it's for a feast. And this is generally where we think that Messiah was born sometime possibly in September around the Rosh Hashanah, or the feast, which is the Feast of Trumpets, or possibly tabernacles uh, late September. Sometimes it's in October. Because the sheep are out. And why are the sheep out? Because these are sacrificial lambs. They're getting, all these sheep are ready to be sacrificed for, for whatever, uh, whether it's Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's why they're out at night. So if you go to Israel today, in Jerusalem, it's like our weather right now. It's cold. You would not put the sheep out. So it, we, we generally think it's September. And again, more pictures of what Bethlehem looks like. St- they still have flocks grazing there. So anyway, this is what was predicted, and this is why they have to go there. But you, Bethlehem Ephratha, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So this this individual this messiah this anointed one will be the ruler whose going forth are from old from everlasting so what did micah predict about the messiah yes he's going to be the ruler of israel he's going to be a man but notice that his origins are from where eternity so he can't be fully i mean he can't be just a human he has deity because his going forth are from eternity So, again, another passage from the Old Testament that predicted that the Messiah would be the God-man. God and man, two natures in one. And that's right there in Micah. So, they go there because he was of the house of the lineage of David. Now, this is important. To be registered with Miriam, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, why does it mention this? Why does Luke mention this? Why does Matthew mention the genealogies of both Joseph and Mary? Well, it's important to understand. Because again, both individuals, Mary and Joseph, are from the line of David, okay? So let me, let me show you something. The lineage of David is predicted to come down to nothing. It is to come down to the days in which Jesse lived who was David's father, which was very poor and didn't have anything. And this is the idea that we see um, in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Now, the, uh, look, notice what it's saying, that it'll come out of its roots. And it's the idea that Jesse's line, even though it was like a great oak, has been cut off. And you just have a stump. And then out of that stump comes a chute. And what it's trying to say is, David's line will get so damaged from the attacks on it, there will hardly be anyone left of it. And it will be reduced to poverty like in the days of Jesse. But out of it will come this one shoot, in that kind of era. Now this is thematic. You sh- the pattern of this theme of all is lost, there's no one left, and then all of a sudden someone rises out is a theme in the Bible. And you see this all the way from the beginning all the way to the Messiah as a pattern. All is lost, there's no one to stand up, and then finally out of the mess, out of the chaos, rises an individual. Whether that's Moses, whether that's one of the judges, or whatever, It's the same pattern, and it's the pattern of the Messiah. The line is almost lost, but yet one comes, and it's him. He branches. Notice it says in Amos 9-11, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle, or sukkah, or hut, of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise it in its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. What it's saying is David's line will be reduced to a shack, to a hut and they will be very poor how do we know joseph and mary were very poor because when they dedicate the lord they can't do the normal dedication which is a sacrifice and so god offered the poor people a sacrifice of turtle doves for if you were poor to make your dedication of the firstborn back to him And so they choose the option of the turtle doves, which is the poorer uh, way of sacrificing for the rededication of the firstborn. So that's how we know they're poverty-stricken. They had nothing, reduced to nothing. Anyway, so we have the lineage of David. Notice, on Matthew's side and then Luke's side, on Matthew's side, it takes you all the way to Joseph, right? On Luke's genealogy, it takes you to Mary, right? Because Mary is from Nathan... This is one of David's kids, and Joseph is from Solomon. Now, why is this significant? The biblical writers wanted to tell you that Messiah is from the line of David. We got that. But the mentioning of Joseph and his line is mentioned on purpose because you see that that name uh, Jehoiakim? in the yellow, that's when that line gets cursed by God. And God says to Jehoiakim and anyone that follows him, no one from that line will ever rule. No one. And notice where it goes to. It goes to Joseph. So the mentioning of Joseph in Matthew and in Luke is to tell the Jewish readers I understand what your objection is going to be. You're going to say that Jesus is from the line of Joseph and he has no right to rule. But Luke and Matthew are saying, you're right if he did come from that line, but he doesn't come from that line because he's virgin born. His line only comes from Mary, which has not been cursed and comes from the line of David through Nathan all the way to Mary. So it's a polemic, it's an argument Against the Jewish objection of why Joseph is mentioned. You can't make that up, man. It's, It's an argument. Anticipating an objection. So anyway, this is what happens. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Again, she's ready to have a baby. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, the idea is, people will say, well, if if Caesar required them to register, why does Mary go? Why does she go with him? And there's been a lot of conjecture, because couldn't Joseph just have went and, and that satisfied? It doesn't seem so. And again, this is arguments from silence, but there's a reason Mary goes, and there could be various reasons. She she could have stayed home and said, look, I'm getting ready to have a baby. Um, You go, register us, and that would have been fine. But for some reason, she's compelled to go. Now, this could be from legal issues or it could be from relational issues. But either way, Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. So somehow, she's got to get to Bethlehem too and have the baby there. Okay, what's the legal aspect? The legal aspect could be that yes, Caesar Augustus wanted everyone to register in their town of of origin, and that would have meant, since she's from the line of David, that she too has to be registered in Bethlehem as well. So that's maybe why he brought her. The other thing is a relational issue. And it very well could be this, that she doesn't want to have her son, which she's been told is the Messiah, without Joseph being there. And so it's a relational thing, and so she just wants Joseph to be there because they're being given this special task, and she goes to be with him and ends up having Jesus in Bethlehem. Either way, it doesn't matter. God gets his purposes accomplished, whether it's relational reason or a legal reason. He got her to accompany Joseph to go to Bethlehem and have Jesus. So again, it's God working behind the scenes, making these things happen. Notice in verse seven, and she brought forth her firstborn son. That's a legal term, by the way. So what is the implications? She is not, Messiah is not only the firstborn son of Mary, which it doesn't indicate that, you know, Mary's not going to have kids afterwards, It means that Jesus is the firstborn, which is a big deal, the prototokos in the Jewish lineage. Okay, hence, because he's the firstborn and because Mary's from the line of David, Jesus is the rightful Jewish individual to take uh, uh, David's throne. Hence, legally, from a legal perspective, jesus has the right to david's throne and that goes to every jew living today every rabbi that would deny that jesus is the messiah because of the lineage and these lineages are kept preserved in scripture messiah there's no one living today that has the right to rule on david's throne only messiah has the right only jesus of nazareth has that legal right so whoever Israel accepts as their Messiah, whoever Israel accepts, which will be eventually the Antichrist, it's a fraud. It's not legal because only Jesus has the legal right according to Jewish law. Again, another confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That's why it's mentioned here. It's a legal right. So, that's our point. But notice this. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, this was a, a thing they picked up, I think, I think most theologians say this, that they picked up the idea of wrapping their babies from the Egyptians. Um, and that would have ha- went all the way back to Moses' day. So what they would do is take these strips of linen cloth and they would wrap the baby like a mummy. And for some reason, I can't figure it out, they wanted to keep the baby's limbs straight. And so the idea of wrapping the baby is was keeping the limbs straight. I don't know if they thought medically that the limbs would grow all crooked or something like that. I have no idea. But they did this as a practice. Everyone did. And I guess, and from what I can understand, they picked it up from the Egyptians. The, the strips are made out of linen. Okay? And there's something here. There's a, a, a symbol in this. They wrapped their babies, and when you looked at the baby wrapped like this, it looked like a mummy. Okay, It was like a, a, a real mummy, because they wrap it up so, so tight. So she does this. But here's, here's the symbolism. The linen strips is from the same linen that they would put on a burial shroud on a dead body. That's weird. So what you're looking at in a baby wrapped in this linen cloth is the same linen you would see on a dead body which shows you that Messiah is born to die. That his ultimate end with, with the atonement was he will die and he will be buried in this same linen as you see him wrapped in this manger. And that was a sign to the shepherds, right? You'll see a baby wrapped in linen in a manger right? So it's a burial cloth. They were using burial cloths to wrap their children in, and it points to his death. And of course, eventually his resurrection. Isn't that... That's strange, isn't it? So the shepherds come on, they see a baby wrapped in burial cloth. Wow. And in the old tradition, oh, they wrapped him in velvet and was all... No, no, no. no. It wasn't in velvet. It was burial cloth. Can you imagine wrapping your babies, your grandchildren, in burial cloth it was a sign so again oops as he's born so he dies and joseph arimathea and nicodemus wrap him in the burial cloth right amazing huh and they laid him in a manger well again the mangers that even we have here are not accurate it's not made out of wood they didn't wood was scarce A manger is a feeding trough for animals. You go to Israel today, you'll see feeding troughs all over the place. And they're mangers. They're they're just carved out of stone. And this is a feeding trough. This would have been something very similar that she would have put him in because they're in a a place where animals are. And there's a feeding trough. So they must have cleaned it out or whatever and put the Lord in a feeding trough. This is the king of the universe, understand. And they're putting the king of the universe in in a feeding trough, because that's all they have. You see the humility in all of this. Do You see the, that Messiah is on the outside. He's not on the inside. He's on the outside. He's not welcomed in society. This is pointing to what we're seeing today. Is there room for Jesus in our society? Back then, they couldn't even find a place for him to be born, because he's such an outsider. No one wants him except the few, except the remnant wants him. The rest don't. So it, again, his first throne on earth is a feeding trough. That's his first throne. Not what you would think of a king, right? But it's the humility, it's the, out, it's the being outside. Now I want to get to the... to. Um, the passage that talks about this, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This is called the kenosis. This is called the humility of the Messiah, that he comes at the lowest rung of culture, the the lowest uh, strata of society. He's poor, he's destitute. There's nothing available for him. They're wrapping him in grave clothes. They don't even have a bed for him. They have to put him in a feeding trough. You see the humility in all of this. And this is the, the passage that everyone knows about. Because there was no room for him, for them in the inn. Now again, like I said, don't, don't translate this into English because you'll think of an inn like a merry old inn in England. And, and I've seen even artists point this out and it's, it's like, england in the 1700s and there's a tavern right next to it and it's like no that's totally totally out of whack that's not what what we're talking about unfortunately that's how it's translated but the word in greek is katalima katalima there was no room for them in the katalima let me show you what a katalima is this is a katalima this, I think, is in Iraq, I believe. I think this is where I found this. this but this is a, an ancient katalima. Now, um, they're also called caravansaries or khans, because a lot of the, that's a, obviously an Arabic word, khans, but it happened a lot in the Arabic world. This, these buildings, according to Josephus and other ancient historians, Tell us about these caravansaries, our khans. And they were all over Israel, by the way. And what they were, were buildings. They had inner rooms. You can see where the doors are. You go into the inner room. Okay? And then in the middle, you would have this courtyard. It, it, they're typically square. And in the courtyard is where you put your animals. Okay? So you would stay in the Catalima. In the and you would go into these doors, and then there would just open, open places. And what happened is, you would go in these places, and these rooms would have multiple families in there staying, because these were like um, an RV place, but it was free. Okay, it was free. So anyone that was traveling to Jerusalem would stay in this caravanseries as they stayed for the feast days, okay? So when the passage says there was no room in the inn, there was no room in the katalimas, the public facilities that are free because of the feast days, uh, probably tabernacles or, or, or uh, uh, trumpets, and they're filled. This is what the end looked like. And so they get there, and there's tons of people there. Like I said, there could be a million people uh, spread out around Jerusalem stay in these commissaries. And this is exactly where Joseph and Mary would have went because they were poor. This is where poor people went. And then they would stay in these public facilities. Okay? I mean, even there was rabbinic law. I was reading there was rabbinic law. Now, this goes into Mary, okay? Rabbinic law even allowed a man to stay in one of these rooms even if there was two other women in there that weren't his wife because it was a public shelter, okay? Rabbinic law forbid a man, other than his wife, to stay in a room with another woman and sleep that night. But the commissaries were allowed by the rabbis because it was a public place. So they allowed it, okay? There's no room for them in the end, could be translated then in two understandings. First, they typically had not a guy who was in charge of these buildings. He made sure everyone was settled and got in and everything was fine. So the innkeeper, it's possible that Mary and Joseph arrive there and he says, I don't have any more space for you. All the rooms are full from the public. There's nothing I can offer you. Or he could be saying, I'm going to follow rabbinic law on this. And I see that your wife is pregnant if she has a baby in the commissaries, I've got to clear the room out for her. And that's going to inconvenience the guests that are staying in that particular room. So, uh, so it could be that. So it's either one. We don't have any more room for her. Or if she has a baby, I got to clear out the room. And I'm not, I, I don't want to clear out the room when I have 12 families living in one room or staying the night. I can't do that to them. And so he's not trying to be mean. And so people always predict the innkeeper is being mean. He's trying to say, look, man, I, I, I don't know what to do with you. There's nothing available. So that's the idea of no room in the end. But what's the message? Even though the guy's not trying to be mean, the message is the world does not have a place for Jesus. He is their Lord, he is their creator, and they still can't find a place for him. It's a message of being an outsider. It's a message that those who follow Messiah are outsiders. He goes after the outsider. The outsiders are the ones that come to him. Not the insiders. The insiders have the money and they stay in the best places. And it's the outsiders that are attracted to them, not the insiders. You are an outsider. And be proud to own that. Because we are not of this world. There is no places for you in this world, right? But there's a place in heaven. That's your home, not here. So it's okay. Wear that moniker of being an outsider, because that's what Jesus was. He was an outsider. He was even crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. Outside, outsider, and it's a, 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 a theme of rejection. That's what it's about. So what happened? They had to find a stable cave. That's what happened. If, if the cons are filled, the only option you have is to go where the shepherds are, out there in the fields, and find a cave. And there's caves all over the place in Bethlehem and all over the place in Israel, by the way. So they found what we call a stable cave. And these were shepherds that kept their animals in there at night. Again, the flocks are out, so there's no animals inside. And so at the end of the day, this is pictures of these caves. Messiah can't even go into a public place. So he has to go into be, be born in a cave. And that's what they look like. These are Bethlehem caves. Messiah I, I, I know. I know this is wrong. I know. I know. Okay? I know. But again, it's, a, it's the idea behind it, right? To be very accurate, it was a cave, right? Smelly, dirty. And what do you think animals do when they're kept in a cave all night? They go to the bathroom, okay? So it's not, it's not the aroma is not what you think it is. It's animal feces, And somehow they had to clean out a trough for him to be born. This is the king of the universe. This is the creator being born in a stinky cave, cold, damp, and he's placed into a manger. Here's inside of these caves. This is what they would have looked like. And there's there's one cave that actually had a feeding trough in it. You see the feeding trough? That's what they were in. Here's another artist rendition or whatever, but it's still a cave. So the picture of the Messiah is this. That's more accurate. That's what it looked like. A cave, animals are in there. You had the shepherds. This is the throne room of the creator when he comes to earth. A throne room of a cave. I let that sink in. Let that sink in, because that's how you will be, too, in this world. What is the picture? The picture is one of rejection. The theme of rejection of being an outcast society, and where does it come from? Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's how the world looks at Jesus. He's despised. He's acquainted with grief. He's nobody, but yet he is somebody. And this is why the world is not attracted to him many times. The world wants to be on the inside. They want to make their name, they want to make their mark, they want to have the power, they want to have the money, they want to be on the inside. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be on the outside. You've got to be on the outside. And when I talk about these churches not having church on Sunday morning, these Laodiceans, and instead of doing a, 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 you know a service in recognition of the birth of our Messiah, they're doing uh, you know Charlie uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and they're doing you know gymnastics and stuff like you would see in a Las Vegas show. It's because they don't have the right priorities. Maybe they're not even saved. I don't know, but definitely if they're Christians, they don't have the right priorities. If Christians, think about this, if Christians can't come on a Sunday morning, on Sunday, on Christmas Day, there's something wrong with them. And this is what I would say if they're a Christian. Somewhere in their pie of their life, Christianity is a small piece of their life. It's one aspect of their life. And they might have other priorities, as you can see on this chart. And some reason today, with the pastors and the churches, something overrode the pastors and the churches not to have church today. At least 40%. What was it? Was it money? Was it family? Was it leisure time? Was it their wife? What, what, what was it? I don't know. But they put something in front of Jesus, because there's no room for Jesus in their world. This is how our life should be. It's a wagon wheel, so to speak. Jesus is at the middle, which means he's the priority over everything that's important to us. Jesus comes first. Jesus comes first in our marriage. He comes first before our family. He comes first before our money, our leisure time, our, 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 our artistic things, everything you do, even the holidays. Jesus comes first that's how you make room for Jesus. Is you prioritize your life saying nothing get in front of him. Not even my wife, not even my husband, not even my kids. Jesus comes first and guarantee I'm going to be here on Christmas day worshipping the Lord. Guys, I'm speaking to the choir and I know it. You've already put Jesus first in your life and I get it. I'm just reaffirming you. Stay with this. Be willing to be the outsider. Be willing to worship your king in a stable, in a stinky stable, because that's where God is found. That's where your savior is found. That's where it's at. So because this, he says, they hated me, they're gonna hate you. So take it and say, I'm I'm gonna be an outsider with Jesus, even if we have to meet in the cave. Because the way this world is getting, we are quickly becoming the outsiders. And I think persecution is eventually coming to our way so be it. I will continue to identify with the Messiah. I will continue to give his word out, in his truth, even if it means I have to go in a stinky stable and worship him. I will be with him. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn about your son and what What situations, all the providence that was involved in getting him to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies. We thank you for the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph. Wow. Amazing people. And they were young, young to do this. Help us to have the guts that they did to make the trek, to make the journey, even how hard it is to fulfill your mission in life for us. And, Father, help us to have the strength to be the outsiders. Not on the end, but will always be looked down upon by this world. But yet, this is the way Messiah did. He humbled himself and help us to humble ourselves and to accept the rejection of this world. And, Father, I pray on this Christmas day, if there's anyone here that hasn't come to faith, they would do so today. they place their faith in the Messiah, understand he died on a cross for their sins, was buried, rose on the third day, gives everlasting life to anyone who will believe. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.